Blog Talk Radio. My name is Catherine, and tonight we'll be talking about imposter syndrome. Allow me to introduce my co-host, Ellie. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Catherine. And sending a shout-out to Amanda, who has the night off tonight, and to Jean, who's still on vacation. And so regular listeners, Jean has been tweeting about her sober European vacation. So check her out on Twitter at Unpickled Blog. And can't wait to hear all about the trip, Jean. So tonight's topic is imposter syndrome, and I think this was one that a listener suggested. (laughs) Excuse me. The Caltech Counseling Center says imposter syndrome can be defined as a collection of feelings of inadequacy that persist even in the face of information that indicates that the opposite is true. And while imposter syndrome is not solely the domain of alcoholics, many of us report deep attachments to perfectionism, and we've done a show on that topic um, and but imposter syndrome is its cousin. So before we dive into the topic, I'd like to welcome our guests, Elizabeth and Carissa. Hi, ladies. Hey, hi there. Hi. So I'd like to start by having each of you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit of your recovery stories. So Elizabeth, why don't we start with you? Okay, great. Thanks, Catherine. Um, thanks so much for having me. I'm really honored, as you know, I'm a big fan of the show and a regular listener. So. Um, so I don't, I don't really remember, um, my first drink. Um, I, I came from a family that, um, w- didn't drink a lot, but my father played, um, a recreational sport and, um, they played every, they practiced every week and went to tournaments up and down the East coast and sometimes further. And, um, you know, this is, this was a beer drinking crowd. These guys were young. And so there was, there was definitely a lot of, um, beer around, but not all the time. And it wasn't really, you know, my parents weren't really drinkers. They didn't, they didn't party. Uh, much and um but um but you know sips of beer were always available <laughs> and i remember mm-hmm. uh, very clearly being at a um um a wedding reception at um some at a, some friend's house and um i i mean i was pretty young i must have been like 12 maybe and um eating all the fruit in the bottom of the punch bowl <laughs> while the adults were off doing whatever they were doing and um you know that it made a pretty big impression on me. Um, and the first time I got in trouble for drinking, I was 13. And um, so that you know, obviously, so I had I had been I had been experimenting um, long enough long enough to get in trouble by that age, and I got in pretty big trouble. Um, and you know, I mean, I was a really good student in school, and, I, and and after and after kind of getting just getting in trouble, you know, I I learned to you know I better. <laughs> I need to be more careful about what I'm doing, but you know it was a different time um in terms of um you know uh, to be growing up and um I was on my own a lot. I was the oldest child I was on a um a different um i was in the you know the junior high and my brother and sister were in the elementary school we were on different bus schedules um so and my mother was work- my parents were working so you know i mean I was on my own a lot and um I was able to um you know do a lot of do my work, but I could be upstairs drinking peach schnapps while I'm doing my homework at you know uh, at eleven o'clock at night or something. And um, you know, why was it always peach schnapps, right? Like everyone has know. a peach schnapps story. Because <laughs> you certainly don't know, right? It's like oh, but I, I only learned that lesson once the really hard way. But you know, I mean, also like you know, it was, it, you know, everybody um, professionally used to give everybody um, you know. Um, alcohol for Christmas, you know, like at, at holiday parties and stuff. So my parents had a liquor mm-hmm. cabinet and, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, taking, so just so that they wouldn't ever notice, I mean, I had some kind of bottle and I would, like a peanut butter jar or something, and I would go take a little of every of each thing and put it in this jar. And, um, you know, and that was, you know, my secret, you know. I was like, oh, what a disgusting way to experiment, right? Um, in addition to <laughs> schnapps. So, um, 
you know, but being a good being a good student and and being generally trustworthy, I mean, certainly got me a lot of space, right? Um, you know, and I had I had you know friends that I might go out with on the weekend, and they you know they would somewhere get a case of beer, and you know we would go drink it in the you know the parking lot of Howard Johnson's or something. But you know, I mean, I, you know, how, how much how I, I wasn't attracting a lot of attention to myself in this in this department, right? Because you know you're you're trying. I mean, so that's where the hiding starts. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, went off to college and, um, you know, that's, you know, let the blackout drinking begin. I mean, not all, not all the time, but certainly um, uh, regularly enough. I mean, regularly enough that, you know, after I graduated from college and um, I was, um, you know, waitressing um, my first job out of college and, um, you know, had a, had a, a pretty heavy run-in with some white Russians on, on New Year's Eve when I was about 22 and, you know that's when the, that's when the rule making started about well, all right, mixed drinks are out for me, and I still joke. I still have joked about this even more recently in the past couple of years. It's like I don't drink anything that tastes like a milkshake. <laughs> you know, if it's, mm-hmm. if it's that, you know, um, there's something that you can guzzle like that. I, it's not for me. But you know, so I mean, the rule making, trying to curb this and take care, you know, allow myself to still drink but not um, be getting myself in that kind of um, trouble um, started pretty early. Um, and then you know there was there were also times where I where I didn't drink a lot. I mean I remember times in my twenties where it's like I would get a bottle of wine on the weekend and I would, um, you know have half the bottle on Friday night and half the bottle on Saturday and and but being very conscious of like you know the next you know the next Thursday like is it time yet? <laughs> you know I got I got to go mm-hmm. get you know got to go get that um, and being kind of um, you know and being uh, you know noticing that like geez I really think I, I feel like I have to do this and and is this a problem? Is it too much? Should I not do this? Um, but you know, and then but then being like hungry for it almost. Um, so um, yeah, things progressed from there, and I um, sometime later, I guess in my mid thirties, I, I got a job at a, um, um, a healthcare information technology start, you know, kind of late stage startup, but not public yet, and um, you know, a lot of drinking going on there, a lot of you know, work hard, play hard. Um, a lot of, you know, social lubrication, you know, fueled by, you know, beer and scotch and all those kinds of things and working really hard and um, uh, not really um, not really knowing yet that something was really wrong or that it was, you know, it was really going to have to turn things around. But, you know, I wasn't making decisions about my life. Um, I really... Um, avoided making decisions about really important things like um, having a baby, <laughs> uh, and mm-hmm. I kind of, you know, I kind of, I kind of didn't make that decision. I kind of gave it away um, to drinking, uh, and then, you know, of course, there's the, you know, the, it turns out, it turns into being hungover every day and um, waking up in the middle of the night every night, um, you know, with with a panic attack, which I I didn't really even realize that's what that was until the past couple of years. Um, and you know, and I must have had eight thousand day ones. Um, and just it was it was like it was almost like a muscle reflex to have my car turn into the package store on the way home. You know, it was, it was almost like I couldn't stop myself. Um, I did not have um, any serious consequences, which is astonishing, um, considering the years that <laughs> went by. Um, and I did, um, I just, you know, just after enough day ones, I mean, it's you know things started to started to click enough that um, I could get a I couldn't get very much time. Um, but I could get a few days or a couple weeks. Um, and then in the beginning of 2014, um, I was serious about it, and I, I did stay quit for um, 47 days, and then I kind of, you know, kind of took a little a little nibble off the path here and there, and, um, you know, you know where that ends up. I mean, back to the same old thing. But then um, last June, um, actually, yeah, so it'll be 10 months tomorrow, um, I... Um, I was getting a cold and I was like, oh, this has got to stop. And I just decided to really take advantage of feeling crummy. It's like, I'm going to feel crummy. I know I'm going to feel crummy trying to, trying to quit. And I'm already getting a serious cold, I can tell. And I just said that, I just said I'm going <laughs> to jump on this horse and I'm going to ride it. And I, you know, so, and I ended up getting a really serious sinus infection. But I felt crummy. I felt so crummy from having a cold that, you know, quitting drinking on top of it uh, worked. <laughs> and, um, yeah. It actually worked, and um, I did. Um, I uh, found an online community that that has been incredibly instrumental, um, and have just 
some of the revelations that have come out of sobriety have just been so amazing and healing. It's enough inspiration to keep it going. And um, I, I, you know, every time I get that twinge, I just, I just think, well, you know, I can drink tomorrow. And every day tomorrow comes, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, so glad I didn't do that. You know. Yeah. Um, so that's yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Well, Elizabeth, I'm so glad you're here, and it's so exciting to be on the eve of your 10 months. Yay. I know, 10 months. So it's amazing. And it's it's such wisdom. Ellie, you always say that where you say, I never wake up in the morning and say, boy, I really wish I had drank last night. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I'll, I'll really, um, you know, look forward to hearing you know, more about what what is being revealed in sobriety. So thank you for being here. But why don't we pull Carissa into the conversation? Carissa, regular listeners will remember you and your voice. You've been on the show a couple of times. You've lent us your insights on the topic of food and recovery. So welcome back. But why don't you reintroduce yourself and your story for new listeners? Awesome. Thank you so much. It's good to talk to you guys. And thank you, Elizabeth, for your story. That's amazing, and congratulations on 10 months. Um, So I come from a long line of alcoholics on both sides of the family, Um, and I have one side of the family that are kind of functional alcoholics and another side that are very non-functional alcoholics. Um, And my dad was sober for 11 years, during my teens, and um, he created a lot of wreckage in our family. And so it was, like, very – it was made very clear to us that the cause of all the upheaval and everything that happened was alcoholism. Um, So I had a healthy fear of alcoholism, and um, I I think maybe as a result of that or maybe just – because it wasn't available. I started my drinking career a little bit later. Like, I didn't have my first drink until I was 18. Um, but, you know, it took off. I loved it. I I had a high tolerance from the very beginning. I seemed to be able to drink a lot more than other women. I was, like, someone who could keep up with the guys in terms of my drinking. I blamed that on my height for many, <laughs> for many years, and I think it's just that... <laughs> I think it's just that I'm an alcoholic. Um, so I uh, I drank heavily through college. I partied a lot. And um, I didn't live up to my potential as a result of that. You know, I was an overachiever. And I, I when my drinking started, I that stopped mattering as much to me. Um, but I I graduated college and my partying didn't really stop. Um, and I think it must have been, I, I think the first time I remember like admitting that I might have a problem, I must have been 22 because my, my dad actually was in rehab after he had relapsed and I was at the rehab for the family week and in one of the groups, like, I don't even remember the language about how it came up, but it was like, if you're concerned about your own drinking, and I kind of admitted to that at that point, and then completely set it out of my mind. Like, I went home and just forgot about it. Um, you admitted it to them, Carissa, or you admitted it to yeah, yourself? Yeah, I, I admitted it. I admitted it in the oh, group, you it out like, loud. out loud. Uh-huh. Yeah, and even to, my, even to myself, I was like, I kind of at that point knew that my drinking wasn't really normal, um, but I just thought, you know, because I because I was functioning, like I, you know, I, I thought of the people in my family that got sober, and they had big-time disasters, you know. It was like DUIs, like arrests, and, and, you know, like ruining of families and that kind of stuff, so those were the people that got sober. You know, the other side of my family, they just drank their whole lives, like, alcoholically. And so I I didn't really think, like, I needed to get sober. You know, like, I didn't think I needed to stop. I, th- I thought it was just going to be okay. Um, so I continued on. Like, one of the jokes I tell is that I met my husband in a bar on a Tuesday. <laughs> you know, <laughs> where I would be. <laughs> 
um, he, <laughs> me too. He and I, uh, he and I were drinking buddies, um, and it was like okay. I mean, I, I, I experienced the low level of which I, I felt like afterwards. I had a low level of depression um, for about basically the entire time I was drinking, and I just thought I was kind of like that life wasn't going my way and that was what was making me upset. Um, and I'd had therapists tell me like, you know, if you stop drinking, that depression might go away. And, um, I just thought that didn't apply to me or, you know, they would say alcohol is a depressant and I would be like, <laughs> whatever, you know, not for me. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so, um, what happened was that after I had, I guess after I had kids and then especially after I had my daughter, my drinking just changed. It really took off after my second child. And um, it, I mean, I was always obsessed. I always, like when I had one drink, I wanted five. <clears throat> that was always in place. But um, the need for it um, started to take over, like, where I would wake up in the morning and like be thinking about when I could have a drink. And at the end I wasn't a daily drinker. I was, you know, drinking maybe every other day or every third day. Um, but I started to experience some stomach pains and I went to the doctor and he did some scans and it came back with my, my liver was enlarged and I freaked out and I admitted, uh, to some people close to me and my doctor that I had been drinking. And at that point, I, at that point I had a three month old, my daughter was about three months old. And, um, I decided I would just stop for 30 days. I don't know how I came up with that, but like, I just decided I was going to give myself a break. So I stopped for 30 days and then, and it, and it like, wasn't really difficult to stop. Um, I just stopped. And then I thought it was going to be, I thought I could like, I don't know if I thought I could moderate, but I thought I could just like go back to drinking like a normal person, even though I didn't ever want to drink like a normal person. I always wanted to drink as much as I needed to drink. So, um, but I picked, so I stopped for 30 days. I picked back up like at Thanksgiving time. And by January, I was um, to like the intense obsession um, and just an inability to, to stop once I had started. So, um, and this, so my bottom like ties into the topic and I, I was I just occurred to me when I was listening, um, my bottom was like pretty uneventful. It's not that I drank any more than any other particular night, like nothing dramatic happened. But what did happen was that I lied about my drinking to my husband and I got away with it. <clears throat> and, um, mm-hmm when I woke up with that 3 a.m. panic attack that I would always get, and I didn't know that's what it was either. When I, when I woke up with that, um, I was so terrified of like who I was becoming because if I was capable of lying about that and no one noticed, like what else might I lie about? Cause I knew, I knew like from my experience in our family that alcoholism wasn't just the drinking that there was like all these other like dishonest behaviors that went along with it that I was really harmed by in my family. And I was afraid of becoming that person, the person who was capable of like really lying and manipulating and um, doing damage in my family. So I, uh, I think I first, I think I first posted on an online group and someone who was local offered to take me to a recovery meeting and um, I haven't drank since then. It's been, I just celebrated three years in February. So, um, yeah, and things have uh, definitely changed. But I'm excited to talk <laughs> about the topic because, you know, even though I'm not drinking, I still have some feelings that I'm not always capable of being as honest as I, was, as I would like to be. Right. Mhm. And and I just have to say that you know, I I had to jot that down, Carissa, when you said I never wanted to drink like a normal person. I wanted to drink how much I wanted to drink. And that 
that yeah. just really hit me in the gut. I I had a, a newcomer um, reached out to me <clears throat> recently, and you know she had about a week sober, and she said something about the idea of like, well, but wouldn't it be great to be able to drink like a lady? And I said, well. Who wants to do that? <laughs> I never wanted. To. I mean, I thought I thought I was a sophisticate. You know, I I thought with my champagne, you know, like lurching, home, <laughs> yes. I was a sophisticate. But but I didn't want to drink like a lady because that would just be one glass, and I wanted two bottles, and I wanted right. more, except that I would pass out before I could get that much in. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's just there's so much here, and and Chris and Elizabeth, we're, we're so grateful to have you, and and thank you for your honesty. So why don't we, you know, you both have set it up really well because there's just so much kind of twists and turns here in in all of our stories about where the hiding starts and where it can go. Um, so Ellie, why don't you introduce some of the characteristics of imposter syndrome, which I was sharing with you guys before the show started that I didn't actually appreciate that it was a real thing that had actual characteristics and and sort of psychological elements to it. So this is also from um, Caltech. Um, so, Ellie. Great. Thanks, Catherine. Um, there are actually three core characteristics of imposter syndrome. The first one is feeling like a fake, the belief that one does not deserve his or her success or professional position and that somehow others have been deceived into thinking otherwise. This goes together with a fear of being, quote-unquote, found out, discovered, or unmasked. People who feel this way would identify with statements like, um, like I, I can give the impression that I am more competent than I really am, or I am often afraid that others will discover how much knowledge I really lack. And the second core characteristic is attributing success to luck. This is the tendency to attribute success to luck or to other external reasons and not to your own internal abilities. Someone with such feelings would refer to an achievement by saying, I just got lucky this time, or it was a fluke, and with fear that they will not be able to succeed the second time or another time. And the third core characteristic is discounting success. This third aspect is a tendency to downplay success and discount it. One with such feelings would discount an achievement by saying, it's not a big deal, or it wasn't important. Um, one example of this is discounting the fact that they made it here, which is a really big success, or saying I did well because it's an easy class, or examples of you know minimizing achievements. And another one, this is one I definitely still struggle with, is that um, you might have a hard time accepting compliments. That's a big one for me. <laughs> Yikes. And, you know, hearing all of these, it really... I, I see how closely tied it is to uh, perfectionism since we we did that show a few months ago. And um, so I'm just thinking, you know, all of these things may attempt to, to lead us to attempt to work harder and longer than other people, which I don't know about anybody else, but for me, this was really a source of not only exhaustion, but resentment and kind of a sense of impending doom. And um, I, for one, drank over my feelings of resentment and fear, which arose from this core belief of being an imposter. But now that we're sober, we can bring these fears into the light of truth, which we're doing today. Um, So, Elizabeth, you know, now that you've heard these characteristics and given your story, do you have any thoughts? Um, Did you have any of these thoughts while you were drinking? Uh, yeah, although like uh, I think Kelly mentioned before we got on, we started recording the call about about having some of these feelings. I think well, I guess if I could say before I started drinking, if I think back to before I was twelve or thirteen, but but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean I think that I think that some of these things um, you know are come along with, um, with 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 humanity and also with drinking. But uh, yeah, I mean the idea of being found out. I mean even but even before there was something to really hide about the drinking, um, I think. Um, I mean, I've often had the thought that, um, yeah, I'm not really that smart or that good at this. You know, they're going to find out I'm not that I'm not that good at this. Um, I mean, and it's really only since um, since I got sober. I mean, I think it was like this winter that I just started telling myself, like, I was kind of down about the work I was doing, and I. And I just started. I just started. I was like, you know, your your clients. My clients think I'm a rock star. 
that's why they that's why they choose me to do this work. Like you know, they really, mm-hmm. you know, I have no I have no evidence. There, there I have no evidence that to think that they're going to find out that I'm a fraud. Like you know, I mean, I I you know I think that that's just my inner you know my inner you know critic I guess or saboteur you know, but I have no evidence of that. You know, so so to let it like steer my life and my you know, kind of my outlook and, and therefore the, the choices I was setting myself up to make was, you know, I just, I, I just started thinking this is this is really misguided to, to to do this without having evidence. I require evidence and data before I make a lot of decisions, you know, other decisions right. about outer, outer, outer other things. Um, but I have no evidence of this and I'm still letting it run my life, you know. Yeah, it's. It's one of those things that can definitely carry into sort of before drinking and then after in sobriety. So it's 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 something that can can be there. Did you feel like you you drank over any of those feelings, or is there a correlation? Um, I think there's a correlation. Like you know, you you mentioned that in the in the intro about um, you know tied to perfectionism, and I never really uh, thought. I was a perfectionist until actually I listened to, I think it was, there might have been an earlier episode about um, perfectionism um, in addition to the one you guys did more recently. And um, and just hearing some of those things just kind of knocked me on my butt. I mean, the idea of, you know, if I work hard enough um, and have all my ducks in a row, then I, I'll put myself beyond the reach of criticism somehow. Like people won't be able to be, be able to criticize me or to <clears throat> reproach me for anything, you know, and that, so not that I had to do everything. I didn't really think that I had to do things perfectly. I just had a very, really high, um, high confidence in my ability to handle things. I was like, oh, that doesn't really work out. Well, we'll do something else. So, you know, I thought, well, that's just flexibility. That's not perfectionism. But when I, when I, yeah. you know, heard, heard, you know, people talking about like, well, you know, you, you, when you have it so tied up, all the, all the, you know, loose ends tucked in so that you're, you put yourself beyond reproach and criticism, it's like, oh well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's me, you know. Um, so I definitely, I mean, I think, and I think that led to, for me led to a lot of exhaustion and, and resentment, and having to take care of everything, you know. Like if somebody, you know, wasn't really too good at, I was like, I'll handle it. Don't worry, I got it. And I mean, I was an executive assistant for some years, and you know, that was my job was to handle it, you know, my, my life and their life, <laughs> to make their life awesome, and you know you know, um, hopefully make my life decent, but mainly make their life awesome. And, yeah, I did drink over that. And then, you know, once once it was the drinking was really a problem, um, then, yeah, then there was a lot of hiding of that, and there was a lot of, um, you know, definitely being inauthentic about that. Like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm just not really a morning person. You know, I, I don't really eat breakfast that much, so no, no thanks, you know. But really it was like if I eat, I think I'm going to throw up. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, and I really convinced myself and other people of that, you know. Mm. Boy, that that idea of of the being perfect and making everything okay and solving everybody's problems as putting us above reproach. That I'm I'm gonna have to really think about that one because I I think that's me down to the ground. Um, yeah, it's like the making yourself bulletproof, you know, like or somebody yeah, can throw a dart yeah. at me, but I'm like, no, I got my ducks lined up in a row. I have the data, or I have, you know, what whatever other yeah. thing, like you know, yes. Bring it on. Try me. Yes. And and I've said this before mm. on the show, but a, a friend of mine in um, one of my recovery groups says that the two biggest lies are I'm okay and everything's fine. And you just said those mm-hmm. two things, you know, like, nope, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Everything's fine. I got it under control. And that was, that was mm-hmm. me. Um, it's mm-hmm. so interesting how this is all of a piece. And Ellie, I'd like to hear your perspective because some of the things that Elizabeth said just there echo things that I've heard you describe about your experience before. Oh, definitely. I can relate to so much of what Elizabeth said, and I can certainly relate to the core characteristics that we were discussing earlier. And, um, you know, I also relate to the idea that the imposter syndrome, as it's described here, it's something that I experienced, I think, I think my entire life. I mean, it definitely predates my drinking. I mean, I, I can look back, and I don't think that I ever felt truly authentic and you know I would actually take the word authentic and and stretch it to unworthy I mean I really felt this true kind of core sense of unworthiness and it it definitely was despite exterior evidence to the contrary I mean I 
was a good student and a good athlete. I always did well in work. I mean, I, I didn't really have any empirical data that would support this. It's a It was a belief system. It was more than just kind of a feeling. Mm. It was a, a core belief about how I felt about myself. And, um, you know, I tie it into, it, this also ties into our show about people-pleasing, um, you know, I, I carried this feeling of if you really knew me, if you really knew me, you wouldn't mm-hmm. like me, you wouldn't love me, you wouldn't want to be around me. Um, and so in that sense, I always felt like a fraud. And, you know, I became, I've talked about this also on the show, you know, a, a professional shapeshifter. I figured out who I thought you wanted me to be, and I became that person. And um, it's a it's a really, it's a disgusting feeling to kind of, it, I was completely aware of the fact that I was doing that, but it was really it it masked a huge anxiety to to sort of make sure that um you know I kept my barriers up pretty high because if anybody scratched too far beneath the surface and realized that i you know that i that I wasn't at all who I said i was and and, and in many ways I wasn't because I was pretending a lot of the time um but mm-hmm. a lot of that i think was it was it was there was a sort of bizarre authenticity to my inauthenticity because I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I wanted. I, I just wanted mm-hmm. you to like me and love me. And um, and so, and I definitely felt these feelings at work too, as I, you know, became a professional and was in the workforce in the corporate workforce for, you know, more than 15 years. And I, I used to joke with some friends and say, you know, I, I feel like a little girl playing dress up and carrying a briefcase into work every day. Like I, I, I did not understand. I kept, I described my success as tripping up, you know, tripping upwards. Like these people have no idea that I don't know what I'm doing. And, and, um, you know, that, that definitely led to uh, perfectionism and, and for me, the word perfectionism, it, it carries a real, the feeling of perfectionism for me carries a real anxiety with it. I mean, as opposed to striving hard or trying hard, um, perfectionism is a fear-based emotion for me, a fear-based action. Like, it's it's done to, as Elizabeth really eloquently described, it's done to prevent anybody from inspecting anything too closely. And, um, you know, when I was drinking... Oh my goodness! My my house was always neat. My kids always had matching socks. Every the homework was always done. I never missed a parent teacher conference. <laughs> I showed up for everything, and you know, I it, at least until the end of my drinking, when everything fell apart. If you looked at my life, it, I did. I had all my ducks in a row, and it was done in sheer panic. I mean, it was done because if I missed something mm-hmm. like that, that might be the thing that tipped everybody off that I was a kitchen closet drinker. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's exhausting to live like that. And that, so that definitely fueled my drinking. I mean, I drank, you know, I drank to hold all those characters together of who I was and depending on who I was with, I drank to relieve the anxiety that I felt that my house of cards was going to come down, that people were going to realize that this whole time I've been faking it. Um, I drank to relieve the inner feelings of worthlessness that I had, I have a vivid memory at my first intervention when it was just my mother and my father and my sister and my husband, and I just I looked at them and I said, you know, don't you understand? Well, I think it was my father. He said to me, you know, you do know that we love you, Ellie. And I just, I said, no, I, I don't. And it's not mm-hmm. because of you. Mm-hmm. It's because of, of mm-hmm. me. Like, I don't, I don't believe you because you don't really know me. And, of course, mm-hmm. they're totally confused mm-hmm. and hurt and baffled by that. But for me, it was a real, um, you know, it was it was a, a core belief. And, and also what Carissa said earlier about um, your, her drinking taking off after becoming a parent, I, I totally relate to that. And I think it does, it, it relays into imposter syndrome a lot because, you know, when you're, yeah, you have an infant in particular. I can I can't shapeshift for this little baby. I can't. I mean, I didn't know enough about who I was or what I wanted, and you can't be an imposter for a three month old. I mean, they just need you. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I think that that really fueled my drinking as well. It, it was a, a hard thing for me to admit that becoming a, a mom um, absolutely threw gasoline on the fire of my drinking because. You know, it was, I, I kind of, maybe I had some idea that, that that final identity of mother was going to fix everything and, and really truly make me, you know, find my calling. And, mm. of course, I love being a mother, but it was, what it ended up being was one more thing on my list of things that I'm an imposter over. And um, so mm. all of these things are, um, and I think we'll get later in the show, talk a little bit about what we do with these emotions now that we're in recovery, but absolutely I drank over them and 
and it definitely was one of the bigger challenges in early recovery is like I still had all those feelings but I I lost my I lost my anesthesia, you know, I lost the thing that was kind of my relief valve from all that scrambling to be perfect and to be who I thought you wanted me to be and to and to hide this idea that the the real me was somehow unworthy or unlovable. So it's all Oh, and the final thought that I had is, you know, the success bit, the discounting success, that is something that has plagued me into recovery, too. That's a that's a big part of my, um, I think it's a piece of perfectionism, too. You know, I can, if I get a little bit of success, it's I, I still find a way, I just move the bar. You know, I still find a way to make it fall short of something else. Uh, it's very, very hard for me to, you know, attribute my own success to my own hard work and also to it ever being enough. You know, it always has to be something more. Do you something, mean, Ellie, your... More. Sorry? Do you mean your success, in, your success in staying sober or your success in all kinds of things? Oh, no, in all kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, I consider okay. success in staying sober not not drinking. I mean, that very basic, at a very basic level, but... Um, you know that was that that is something that I continue to struggle with even in sobriety is this idea that you know mm-hmm. any success I have can't be real it's got to be some external thing or some luck or some other um forces that work that it can't be attributed to you know my own worthiness or my own hard work um so this whole this had, whole concept really resonates with me yeah I, I mean we've had so many people on the show or emailing to us saying that like well my house was perfect when i was drinking and now it's a mess <laughs> and now i'm going out without the, the matching socks and like everything's a disaster and and <laughs> and sort of now it's like whoa i have to face i'm not controlling all of that but there's still those mm-hmm. emotions that that kind of come up um but you know, Carissa, I know you had a, a different take on the topic of imposter syndrome as it was laid out in the Caltech article, and, and you said that you put up a facade, but you didn't quite look at it like this. Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, I, once after getting sober, I mean, I, I over time it's being revealed to me kind of how thick my facade is, and I think like for me it. You know, what I portrayed on the outside, It's I think I was so heavily identified with that that I wasn't really afraid of being found out. Like, that just felt like who I was. You know, and I always, and my ego's large, so I, a lot of alcoholics are, but I always felt like I was pretty capable. Like, I was smart, I did good in school. You know, when I gra- I had a tough time after I graduated from college, but when I when I had jobs, I felt like my baseline effort was probably, you know, above average. Um, but my thing was like I always figured I could probably figure something out to be the best. You know, like it wasn't enough for me to just be, you know, kind of above average and doing well. I was really sure that like. And I was entitled, right? So I'm like, I don't understand why I wouldn't be promoted yet. Or, um, you know, I kind of had that going. So that contributed to the facade because I would never just be myself. Or, you know, my my general effort was never good enough because I was pretty sure I could be better than everybody if I just figured something out. And And I was always like, why doesn't everyone realize that? You know, so in terms of, like, my career and and that kind of stuff, that's how I felt. But when we were talking about this and now I'm thinking about it, you know where I, I was thinking about how I felt like the imposter, like, socially and in my relationship. Mm. And I think, I think that's where I more identify with it. Like, I remember, let's, I live in Los Angeles, and I remember, like, going out, um, to like a very fancy, fancy rich people, famous people bar and being like, I do not belong here. Like anytime I would be in that kind of situation, I would very much feel like unworthy, <laughs> you know? So if um, this, my surroundings were nice, 
I was very much like, I don't belong here. Now, I never thought that I could pretend. Like, I, I would know that everyone would just see that I, I shouldn't be there. So I would drink, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't really think I was capable of, like, pulling off the facade that I would convince people that I belong there, you know? So I would just drink and, you know, try and convince people to go somewhere less fancy you know, <laughs> so, I could, so I could be comfortable, <laughs> you know? And, and, and the other thing, like, and this is, like, to take it a little bit deeper, like, and especially in relationships and with men, like, if a guy found me attractive I mean that's sheer dumb luck you know mm. totally mm-hmm. you know I, I I wouldn't I would be like floored if someone looked in my direction or, or paid me any interest or anything like that so and then you know I would totally shape shape shift in my relationship I'm like what football team do you like okay I like them too yeah you know? yeah <laughs> it's it's funny you know it's interesting because all three of you have mentioned in some way or another that second element that attributing success to luck. I mean, so whether it's success at work or success, Ellie, how did you say it? Tripping, tripping up? Uh, tripping upwards. Tripping up. Yeah. Yeah. Tri- tripping upwards. And then, and but even with attracting somebody, you know, why couldn't the guy just be interested in you because of you? You know, instead it's like, oh, um, yeah, that's a powerful one. And, you know, that role of the the external uh, environment and how powerful that can be in shaping our sense of safety or belonging, um, I still feel that way now that I'm sober and I don't have anything to hide it. I, I definitely go into a social situation now and feel like a 13-year-old, like a dorky, <laughs> just, mm-hmm. you know, totally. like I don't have it together. I feel like I look like a dork. I feel like I have nothing to say. I'm too intense. I'm like weird, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. And um, so let me see, where are we? You know, so many of our listeners talk about being perfectionists and driving to put up that front so like there's that emotional disconnect and anxiety that can that that can cause when we know we're drinking too much and can't control it so here we are we're trying to be perfect and control everything and and yet now we're starting to feel like oh shoot there's a problem um so you know ellie what did that feel like for you i mean you know you've You've described um, a little bit just now that first intervention, but, like, that admitting that you needed help, that admitting that you had a problem starting with yourself or to other people, like, how did that square with being a perfectionist? And Oh, it didn't. Um, it didn't at all. I mean, it was... Um... It was a strange place to be in at the end of my drinking because I I knew that I was an alcoholic and... Um, that I couldn't stop drinking months before the intervention. I mean, I I knew that in what it became, I became sort of, not sort of, I became possessive about my drinking. Um, and I got to the point where I had to be maintenance drinking pretty much around the clock. Um, and so I was very perfectionist-y about my drinking, I have to say. Those two those two worlds <laughs> kind of blended in, in a really effective way for until it was totally ineffective. Um, you know, I had alcohol with me all the time. I was pouring it into water bottles or you know, disguising it in coffee cups and all different kinds of ways. Um, and, it, you know, a lot of times I think we think we're fooling people when we're not, but I, I know that I was fooling people for, for a long time. And it was a very odd sensation leading up to when I had to admit that I had a problem, really kind of aghast at how... Um, you know, I kind of, I think part of me really wanted to be found out. I couldn't believe that I was continuing to get away with what I was getting away with. And it was such a horrible feeling because that chasm between what people saw and how I felt on the inside kept getting wider and wider and wider. And I, you know, I, it was, I, I felt lower and lower and lower inside. And outside I was just, you know, cooking right along, cooking with gas. Nobody could see any anything, mm-hmm. anything wrong. And, um, and, 
I, I this is not my particular story, but I, I have a I hear a lot of women in particular share that when they finally decide that they want to get sober, there's a lot of people in their lives that say to them, you know, but you're not an alcoholic, you don't drink that much, and and for me that was not the case. By the time the intervention came along, I mean it was very very clear that I couldn't stop and then I I needed help, and um, so. I put on a different sort of mask. I mean, I said, okay, I'll get the help and I'll go to treatment and I'll do what you are telling me I need to do. But I I sort of, in the in the back of my mind, I thought to myself, I'll just do this until everything settles down and then I'll get back to doing things my way because that way worked. I just have to get back to that point where it was working, where I could get everything done and drink at the same time. Um, but that plan didn't pan out. When I was in treatment, I went to longer-term treatment and I realized about halfway through that, that I I had to stop. That I you know that it was much more dire than I could admit to myself, and that um, that all of the feelings and problems that I had in my life were related to drinking. But the thing that scared me the most, and why it was so hard for me to envision putting down the alcohol, was I didn't know how to be. You know, I didn't know how to strip those masks away and just be myself. Um, and that, that was terrifying. It was terrifying to come back into my house the first time, even with my own family, and and you know show up for everything—the good, the bad, the boring, the happy, everything. Um, <laughs> right. And so, so mm-hmm. I really, I did, I did the fake it till you make it. You know, people have interesting feelings about that statement, but I, um, I, I had to sort of keep telling myself, well, you know, it's all, it's all going to come crashing down at some point, but just for now, I won't drink, and just for now, I'll keep trying to work on myself and. I had to really hang on by my fingernails for six to eight months before um, the obsession went away and I was able to really start doing the hard work on figuring out who I was and dropping those masks um, because it it was not uh, – it did not jibe well at all with my personality to say that I needed help. It had to be thrust upon me. And it, it's kind of ironic now given, right. you know, I've, I've taken a completely different stance and I uh, – you know, I I'm very proud of being in recovery, and I'm I'll talk about my drinking history or my recovery to anyone now. But that was years and years of work to get there because admitting I couldn't do it all, that was just not something that I knew how to do. It had it had to be forced on me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, there's just so much there about. I'm thinking like, how do we even find out? who we really are. Um, you know, Carissa, you talked about, you talked a little bit about that role of ego. You, you sort of made a passing statement about many alcoholics have um, big egos or strong egos, and we have done a show on ego in case anybody's confused about what that to- topic is or that concept is. But, Carissa, talk a little bit about what that meant for you. I guess. When I think of ego, I think, you know, being externally identified. And one, that means, I mean, for me, that I get my self-worth or even, you know, what my feelings are based on what's going on outside of me. So mm. I have to, I rely on feedback from the people around me to tell me how to feel. And, and I know for me you know, this may be a separate topic, but growing up in alcoholism, I mean, I became an expert in that of, you know, kind of judging what's going on around me and then kind of, you know, fitting myself in that to make everything as pleasant as possible, you know? And, Mm -hmm. and um, in terms of like learning who I really am and dropping the facade, man, I don't know. I, I mean, I think this is like my lifelong work. I I have Mm -hmm. such a hard time knowing Mm. what I'm feeling. I have, you know, I, um, it takes a lot of like work and attention for me to know what I'm feeling like at any given moment, you know, and and a lot of it is like, I have, I have to visit it after the fact, you know, and unfortunately sometimes it's, it's after something, you know, bad has happened something you know that I didn't even know I was slightly resentful I didn't know I was a little bit sad I didn't know I got my feelings hurt because I'm just not paying attention to what's going on inside because like I never learned that that might be important you know I learned to that it was more important what it looked like out on the outside 
Right. I can relate to that. Yeah. Absolutely. That's. This is Ellie. I just wanted to jump in for a second too, because I think one of the um, Catherine, the way you phrased the question, made me think. You know, how do we figure out how to drop these masks and figure out who we are? Um, Again, inevitably in every show, it does come back to having um, recovered people in my life because it was it was the reflection of the recovering people in my life, how they saw me and revealing my innermost fears and being able to have the courage to say, I don't even know how I'm feeling right now or I don't have a handle on this or I need help. And then having the people around me um, who I didn't need to have a mask on for. And they sort of Mm -hmm. taught me how to do that. I saw in their, I saw through them how they saw me and I kind of figured out who I was through them and with their help. I mean, it required me yes. to drop the facade to begin with, which was extremely difficult to do, but um, there's something different about the connections between recovering people because they, they do. They understand what you've been through and how you feel. And you can even to have a conversation like we're having tonight with all four of us, you know, nodding in agreement to everything people are saying. I, I completely mm. the fact that I could say to someone like Carissa, I don't usually know how I feel about any given thing and have her totally understand what I'm talking about yeah. that's the beginning of, of piecing together um, you know, that it's okay not to know and it's okay to have it be a constant work in progress. That's the opposite of perfectionism for me is is being okay with not knowing all the time and have, having other yeah. people help me figure it out. And I just, when, mm. when Carissa said that, I said, oh, my gosh, me too. And then I had this brief thought, like, do you think if anybody who's a normie out there would were listening to this show, if they'd be like, what are you talking about? How do you not know how you feel? And yet, how, right. I don't know, Elizabeth, I'd be curious to hear if that resonated with you. Maybe we'll get a, a, you know, a big win here of everybody. But I feel like I hear that a lot in my recovery community. So what what about that resonates with you, Elizabeth? Um, I think um, I'm pretty comfortable with just saying I don't I I need to think about that or I need to you know I'm, I'm processing that. Um, I kind of think a lot more than I feel, and what I think mm. has a pretty big effect on how I feel about something. So I'm much more likely to kind of assess the situation well <laughs> interestingly i mean i did not go grow up in a you know in a, a house with alcoholism but um there was a time when um uh, my father was running our family business or taking it over from my from his his mother and um it was really stressful and i was a kid you know and uh he was angry a lot and so there was a lot of um of me feeling um shut down um needing to be quiet um, and having to figure having to figure out quickly every night when he came home. So what's the situation? What do I need to do? And I was the oldest, so you know, what do I need to do to keep the peace here? You know, so um, mm. I'm not saying that that's the same growing up in a, in a house with alcoholism. But um, when people talk about that aspect of it, um, I really, I go, well, oh yeah, I know what that's like. So um, I mean, I'm much more likely to just kind of assess the situation, think about the questions, what are, you know, and my feelings somehow fall out of that, you know, afterwards. It's not a real. Um, it's not a real instant thing usually. <laughs> so, so any kind of process like about body work and yoga or like you know, breathe in while you're doing this with your legs. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, it's really hopeless. But I mean, it's a it's a learning process. I mean, I'm enjoying doing that. Um, yeah. You know, um, and I think that you know, in terms of you know, figuring out who we are, um, one thing that, that I I realized you know, in the past few months or, you know, this winter sometime was that for me, a lot of stuff was off the table. And so like as an adult, you know, I mean, I'm 46 and there's been a lot of time where I'm like, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know. You know, I just don't know what I want. Yeah. And it's, yeah. you know, it seems ridiculous. How could I not know that, you know, anything about that? And when I, but then when I, I, you know, I thought, I remembered that, you know, when I was a kid, I was really into um, writing and art and, you know, communication stuff and, you know, all that creative stuff. And that wasn't valued in my family at all. Um, mm-hmm. um, all the engineering was, was the big valued thing. And, you know, again, it was a different time. So, like, you know, it, it's, it, it may have been true then that, that it, you know, my, my father's concern about, you know, will you be able to support yourself as an artist? Well, I mean, you know, he, you know, he had, he had, a, he had a, a 
a point of self of you know preservation and, and you know desire for my well being. Um, but you know, there, so there was a, that time in my you know, but before I was a teenager even, where that stuff was all off the table. And so when you take all that stuff that's really important to you and it's off the table. Well, no wonder some time goes by and I don't know what I want to do. Like any time it's like, well, what do you want to do? It's like, well, I don't really know because all this other, all this stuff is off the table. Um, and it's really mm-hmm. only, you know, since, um, you know, since I got sober and have really thought about, well, what, what is it that I'm, what, what is it that I need to get out from under the table and back on the table again? Um, you know, in yes. the time, oh, you know, I, I, when I, I, wasn't, I wasn't doing. <laughs> I wasn't doing all that. I mean, I was still doing, I mean, it was, so the message to me or the message that I perceived was that it's okay to do those things, but for, those things were for me. Those were inside my wall. Those were for me. And so, you know, I learned a lot of other really practical, like business world stuff. Like I got, I, I got some real kick-ass experience and, and skills. Oops, sorry. Um, and um, those things are, those things have turned out to be really useful um, and I, and now that, you know, I'm more willing to or have realized, like, oh, there's some stuff under the table that's been off the table all these years, I mean, maybe the, some of these things that I've, these other skills have acquired and experiences will turn out to be useful in, you know, in exploring and growing into some of these things that have only kept, like, you know, in my wall, only for me. Um, hmm. You know, we'll see, we'll see what happens when I water those things. But Ellen, yeah, you said about, you know there was a there was a piece of you know a real um, authenticity in your inner authenticity because you didn't know who you were. Well, mm-hmm. that really you know struck a chord with me because you know all this stuff was off the table for me. So how could I know what I wanted? Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> the part of me that was really me was off the table, you know. So well, yeah, yeah. and so, that's yeah. what I was gonna say. It's like that. It's like you actually did know who you were mm-hmm. and who you are. But you had to move from heart to head. So you said something that I know Miss Ellie and I <laughs> have in common with you, which is that we're very brainy and we're good to mm-hmm. we're good about being in our heads and we like we have we're very clever with our words, but getting mm-hmm. back into the heart is the hard part. But then again, the answer is you do know what you want, you do know who you are. Um so now the trick is just integrating all that good brainy stuff that you have and you've developed and integrating it, that's, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's how I heard it and that's been my experience. That's, I just wrote that down. What do I need to get back on the table again? Maybe that's going to be our closing go around. Um, so mm-hmm. everybody think on that and I'm just going to share a little anecdote and then we'll, we'll wrap up the show. Um, I wanted to talk about something that happened recently for me and it was for me sort of the definition of this recovery term, which is being right sized. So when Carissa was mm-hmm. talking about ego and, and the ego being this externally based thing, being right sized is neither being the best, thing in the world nor the worst thing it's not being that your success is the greatest thing ever but it also doesn't mean that your success was just because of luck um it's like the fish is the size of the fish it's not big bigger than it is or smaller than it is anyway i recently had this opportunity at work and as you guys know i do a lot of like public speaking stuff and a lot of media And anyway, this really high-profile opportunity came up, and it was sort of a quote-unquote big deal. And I had to drop everything in order to do it. I was really sick and was losing my voice and had laryngitis. And every time I felt myself going into fear about it, some little voice in my head was just saying, nope, that day is down further down the week. Just stay where you are. And somehow during the entire experience, I stayed right-sized. It meant that I stayed out of fear and I just did what I needed to do to prep. And then I did the big event. And what was interesting is that people who were there were like, aren't you nervous? Aren't you nervous? And even my husband was like watching me on TV and was like, I was so nervous for you. And I didn't feel nervous. And I think the reason was was because I didn't think that I was great, but I also didn't think that I didn't belong there. I didn't say to myself, oh, what if they find out that I don't know what I'm talking about? Now, uh, having while I felt mm. fabulous that week and was really feeling like, wow, this is recovery in motion, 
I will say that that only lasted about two days. <laughs> so, like, I was back <laughs> in, my, in my work frenzy, and, and, and I have a big thing of always feeling like a fraud, um, you know, 20 years into my career. But so it didn't – I guess it's something that I have to work at all the time, but it's possible, and now I have – um, that sober reference of like being right size is possible. Yeah, and that, I love that. That's a touchstone for me. Yes, maybe next time I'll let it. I'll get it to last three days. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're rounding out the hour, and you know, normally as we close out the show, we go around and we all share one thing that we're taking away from tonight's show. So, certainly feel. Uh, welcome to do that but I, I would be I'd love to hear what each of you think that you need to get back on the table again to use Elizabeth's words mm. so we're, we're finding ourselves and our authenticity here on the bubble hour tonight um, so Ellie why don't I start with you oh I was hoping you wouldn't start with me um, you know it's interesting I, I, I loved that, that that whole topic came up because one of the things that I realized when I got sober um, is that I call it like the blueprint of life. Like I felt like I was living somebody else's blueprint and it's impossible to say who it was. It was just, it was ego. It was external validation. I was doing the thing that I thought would garner me the most external validation as opposed to what lies in my heart. And um, it was a tough lesson to learn that just because I'm good at something doesn't mean that I should be doing it. Um, and so it's for me, and and that's how I started in my own artistic endeavors, my creative endeavors and things that are really more of a, a heart song for me instead of something that is practical and or expected of me. Um, but the, the, the thing that I have to get, keep on my table, get back on my table and keep on my table is really being able to exercise uh, balance in those things because, um, mm. Like I mentioned before, it's it's never enough for me. And every time I'm not right-sized and just, you know, being able to exist with things being just fine the way they are or, you know, that I'm doing okay or that I have enough, um, that's always ego taking over. Like if, if, if I've gotten this far, well, why not that far? And then why not further than that? Um, you know, sort of future tripping about the ways that things could be better um, is probably the, the biggest perfectionist symptom that I have right now um and so it's kind of like I need to stay in my blueprint my own blueprint but also you know keeping right sized within that and not uh not constantly selling myself short for what it is that I that I am able to accomplish because I think it needs to be more than it is if that makes sense here here because I'm pretty I'm, I'm pretty happen. happy with what's on my table I just need to be I need to stay happy with it and not try to make it into something else you know fixing things that mm. are broken that Right, that kind of and thing. Ellie, I'm so glad that you mentioned um, the importance of having a recovery community because those people, those sober people can help you evaluate what's on the table, how is, yeah. how are you balancing that right now. Like, they can help you parse all of that, right? And They do it all us. the time. Um, yeah, yeah. They, it's a great yeah, check and balance so, for me. Yeah, I love that you mentioned that. Thank you. Um, so, Elizabeth, how about you? Um, so I think what I'm taking away is I, I, this right-sized idea and um, that, that both you and Chris um, talked about. And um, along that line, you, I, I'm sure you've, you've probably heard Brene Brown's authenticity mantra, which is um, don't shrink, don't puff up, stand your sacred ground. That's what yes. she, she says that she she uses when she goes into some situation where she is you know, about to like you know, you know, where she's uncertain and, and uh, needs to, uh, you know, be herself. Um, don't shrink, don't puff up, stand your sacred ground. And I just I think that applies to being that. right size. So um, I you know borrow her often just she mantra you know occasionally. <laughs> so um, and as oh, far it's as perfect. Being, um, yeah, I love that. Um, as far as getting something back on the table, um, I think the thing that I was angriest about when I was um, a kid and into my early teens um, that, you know, got a, lo- got a lot of things off the track for me was um, 
to have to have those things be off the table about uh, you know art, creativity, communication, language, and I have gotten those mm-hmm. things on the table in some ways, but um, being silenced and um, and I, I have have had that coming coming back up in the past couple of years um, where I've just you know said well listen I'm not you know no I am going to speak up I am going to have this confrontation and I'm not going to be you know like no you're not shutting me up and like there is no shutting me up anymore not that I need to be out blaring things but just like you know no I'm not the nine year old who who can be silenced anymore I'm the decider um, and I love it up. so um, one of the funny things that happened when I uh, got kind of got some sobriety, a little bit of sobriety under my belt, is I had this weird flash of, like, I should go to Toastmasters. And, and like, I never went nice. for presentations. Catherine, I could never do what you, like, do public speaking. And I Like, ugh, I could, it just makes me want to throw up. But, you know, it's just it's funny that that kind of thing about being silenced is a thing that really made me angry. And, and to have this thought flash into my head, I, I should go to Toastmasters? I mean, really? I don't know. So, and I don't know. So there's just something there about speaking up and showing up. Um, that needs to be back oh, on the table, great. I think. So that's it. Oh, my God. Oh, I love, love that. it. I love that. So here, here to finding our voice. I mean, when I do public speaking, I have to say that I have that phenomenon of like, you know how, and I'm not comparing myself to Beyonce, but, but she says that <laughs> she has her her persona, like her stage persona is Sasha Fierce, and she she's like, it's not even me. That's how I feel when I'm doing public speaking. Yeah. Like it doesn't, I'm nervous up until the minute, and then I do it. And then afterwards, I'm like, what just happened? Um, mm-hmm. But I, I will say that that, especially, maybe there's a show topic in here somewhere, because especially for women, I think women, we feel like our voices are discounted, and we self-select mm-hmm. that way. You know, I don't want to make a sweeping statement, but I know enough women that have said things like that, and I know for myself that it that's uh, I love that that you're coming back to your voice. That's amazing. Definitely. And Miss yeah. Carissa or Ellie, were you going to say something? I'm sorry. Nope, I was just agreeing wholeheartedly. <laughs> So, Carissa, last um, word goes to you. Yeah, um, what I'm putting back on the table. Ugh. <laughs> you know, being sensitive, um, allowing myself to be sensitive and admitting to that, which is a hard one, um, but I think something that needs to come back on the table. Um, that's enough. For me, right? Yes, that's amazing. That's a big one. That's yeah, a big one. Yeah. Well, you know, ladies, thank you so much for your honesty and your humor and everything here. I, there's there's a lot going on in this episode, and I feel like I have to go back and listen to it a bunch of times. Um, so, Elizabeth and Carissa, thank you so much for being our guests. And Thank you. as we close the show tonight, we'd like to direct you to our parent organization, ShiningStrong.org, and there you will find links to all of our recovery resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now, and other initiatives around recovery advocacy. Visit the Bubble Hour's website at thebubblehour.com to find a link to many recovery resources, including Jean's blog, Unpickled, and Ellie's blog, One Crafty Mother. Our email address is thebubblehour at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Please let us know your feedback about tonight's show and any other topic suggestions. We thank all of you for listening to The Bubble Hour and hope you have a great evening. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much. Good night, ladies. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good night. night. Bye-bye.